May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy scripture. In the first book of Samuel, chapter 17, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Ashkah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Skipping down to verse 32, same chapter. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant was struck down both, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who de delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will smile, strike you down, and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the, to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the lord's and he will give you into our hand then the philistine arose and came and drew near to meet david david ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the philistine and david put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it slung it and struck the philistine on his forehead the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. This is God's word. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you. Um, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to this really super famous verse and see what we can find out from this. Uh, Lord, thank you so much uh, that you are um, forever with us, Lord, that your, your mercy is with us always, and that you pursue your people. Lord, as we wander like sheep gone astray, Lord, you promise that you'll go after the one, that you'll seek us and draw us in. We're grateful for um, that kind of a shepherd, that kind of a loving and caring shepherd. Thank you for that. 
And Lord, to that end, we want to pray again for the West family, for uh, Harlan and, and his relatives as they deal, continue to deal with, um, with two um, deaths very close to each other and, and um, all the things that have to happen in that materially, physically, legally, but also spiritually and emotionally. Um, be with them. And I pray that uh, you would be a source of strength and help to Harlan and that he would be a source of strength and help to his family too. That uh, the love of Christ would shine out from him, that he would have hope even in, in the loss. Uh, Lord, have mercy on them, we pray. And Father, we want to pray for Abisai. Um, and uh, Lord, thank you for him completing basic training for his return home and, um, and now part of the guard. But Lord, we pray that you'd help him find a job. Um, ran into some young people at a coffee shop recently who were looking for employment. And there seems to be a, a help wanted sign everywhere, but um, doesn't appear that help is actually wanted. <laughs> So, Lord, would you would you bless Abisai with a, a, a good job, land him where he needs to be. And, uh, Lord, I want to pray as we're coming close to the men's retreat uh, next month. Uh, Lord, I pray for the, the retreat. I pray for the three churches involved, for all the preparation that goes into it. But, Lord, especially for the day of the retreat, that we would um, come together knowing each other, not knowing each other. But, Lord, that it would be a time of encouragement, like your word says, iron sharpening iron. Um, discussing important matters about you, about life, about um, vocation, and all of those things. So bless that men's retreat, we ask, and especially all the men who are participating. May they be drawn closer to you, and Lord, would you use that as one more thing to conform all of us into your image. Have mercy on us, Jesus, we pray. And Lord, now as we turn to your scripture, we need you. Um, this is a very familiar passage, a very familiar story. Um, Lord, help us to see what it is that you're saying to us this morning, not the cartoons and the flannel graphs and all the other things, but Lord, what is it that your word is speaking this morning? Make that clear to us and rooted in our heart, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the danger of preaching a very familiar story, because we all know it, right? Um, you, you already know who wins, what the end of it is. Um, even if you're not a religious person, don't believe the Bible, everybody knows David and Goliath. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, that's one problem is it's familiar. The other problem is it's long. It's almost 60 verses long. So um, I only had Rich read a couple of portions, and I'm going to kind of summarize a lot of it just to get us through the story. But then at the end, we'll come back and we'll, we'll see what the application of it is. Um, so just a reminder, last week we looked at the end of chapter 16. That was the, um, the spirit coming upon David. Um, the um, Saul going home, him departing, the spirit leaving Saul, and an evil spirit coming upon Saul. So there was a lot of movement. And we saw that that was kind of the beginning. That was the mark of the beginning of David as king because the spirit was upon him. Um, but he's not the king yet. He's not going to be the king for a long time. This is the first time we see David act. We're actually going to hear him speak today. He hasn't done any of that yet. He's been a minor character to this point. So here we come to the next big event in, in, in David's life, and it starts with the arrival of the Philistines yet again. The Philistines gathered their army, and they gather in the Valley of Elah. Now, the Valley of Elah runs east-west, pretty much across the middle of Israel, just south of uh, uh, Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem. And it's, it's this valley between these two big mountain ranges. So it was kind of almost like a nice highway from Philistia into the heart of uh, Israel. And if the Philistines can get in there and can establish themselves and can uh, uh, begin to build themselves up, they will cut Israel pretty much in half. 
And so Saul's like, I, we can't deal with that. We can't let them come in any further. And so he mounts his counterattack and they join the forces and they head to the Valley of Elah. So where we see is we see that on one side of the mountain of the valley is the Philistines and on the other side of the mountain, on the other side of the valley is Israel. And they're facing each other and nobody's fighting yet. This is tactical. There's, there's a reason for doing that. If you're charging down the mountain, you're, you're subject to the other guy attacking. And so they're kind of waiting on each other. But the Philistines have an answer for this. They're, they've got a plan. And so what they have is they send a champion out. And a champion, this, this idea is, is called single combat. We'll have somebody represent the Philistines. We'll have somebody re represent Israel. They will come and fight each other. And depending on how that fight goes, that's how the battle will go. Instead of having to have the whole fight, we'll just have these two guys fight, and that'll determine it. So they're, they're called a champion. Literally, in Hebrew, it's the man in between. Because what you would do is you'd have these two men stand in between the two armies and fight. So let's meet this guy who, who's going to be the Philistines champion who's proposing this. Uh, verse 4, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. We all know this. Goliath is a giant. He is somewhere between six foot, the Septuagint says he was four cubits, that's about six foot, and nine foot, which is what the Hebrew says, giant. Now, some people dismiss this as pure myth. There's, you know, we don't have giants like that, but that's not true. There, there are cases of giants like that. So let's discuss real quick, who is Goliath? Well, Goliath is, he's probably about eight foot tall, somewhere in that neighborhood, over eight foot tall. That's not unheard of. The tallest man on record in the Guinness World Book of Records was almost eight, almost nine foot tall. So this isn't impossible. The man's name was Robert Wadlow, and he was born in Alton, Illinois in 1918. By the time he turned eight years old, he was taller than his father. When he graduated high school, he was eight foot four. When he finally died 22 years old in 1940, he was eight foot 11. So it's entirely possible for human beings to get that big. That's not unheard of. Um, this isn't a myth. This is a reality. Goliath is not fictional. He's terrifying. He's huge. Now, the way that, um, that he got that big, the way that, um, that uh, Robert Wadlow got that big was he had a tumor on his pituitary gland. And so it pushed on his pituitary gland, and he was constantly subjected to human growth hormone. So he just constantly grew. When he died at 22, there's no sign that he was going to stop growing. So Goliath is probably coming from that same kind of condition, that same kind of thing where he's got this growth hormone and he just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, we don't know how old he was. Uh, sometimes I've heard this and I don't want to like waste a lot of time on it, but I just want to say, answer a, a real quick question. Some people say, oh, well, Goliath was one of the Nephilim. And the idea there is in Genesis chapter 6, it says that the sons of God came and they saw that the, the daughters of men were beautiful and they went in and took them as wives. And the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And so that's who this is, is the Nephilim were giant supermen and they were on the earth and Goliath is one of those. A lot of problems with that. First of all, it says that the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives, but it doesn't say that their children were the Nephilim. All it says is the Nephilim were in the land or on the earth at the time that they happened. So it's not necessarily true that those are the offspring. It's just this occurred at that time. The other thing is that idea that the sons of men were angels. 
Um, the idea is fallen angels came and they took women. Well, there's no biblical evidence that angels are physical. They're spiritual beings. So how could they impregnate a woman? It just, it doesn't line up right. It doesn't seem to make sense. And then the worst thing in there is in the very chapter, it says they were in the earth at that time and afterward. Now, if they were in the earth afterward, that would mean they either survived the flood, made it on the ark, or the angels came back and did it again. And there's just no evidence of any of that. So what is Nephilim? Well, who are the Nephilim then? Well, the word Nephel in Hebrew means to fall. So people say, see, it's fallen angels. Well, you got to assume the angel part. It could be these are men who are violent. They fall on people. They jump on their victims. They're violent men. That fits with the description of what was going on in the earth in Genesis chapter 6 is it was a time of extreme violence and, and men were horrible to each other and things were going rotten. As a matter of fact, in chapter six, it says the Nephilim were the mighty men of the, of the days. They were the mythical figures, these giant fighting men, not giant as in tall, but really huge. So I don't think that Nephilim means some supernatural, superman, hybrid angel kind of thing. Plus they've got to show up later. But the, the, one of the reasons that people think it's the Nephilim is because um, in um, uh, Numbers, when they go into the land to scout out the land, they say the sons of Anak are there who are, who are of the Nephilim. And so the, the, the sons of Anak are described as great and tall men. And we thought we were grasshoppers in their sight. So it seems like maybe the sons of Anak are giants, and that's compared to the Nephilim. Again, I think the, the, the sons of Anak might have been giants, but it's more likely that they were violent men too. So Goliath is not some mythical figure. He's not some Superman. He's simply a giant. Now, when he comes out, imagine your army is facing somebody that big. That's just intimidating. But it goes worse than that. It goes much further than that. Not only was he a giant, he was the M1A2 Abrams tank of the day. He was equipped like you wouldn't believe. He's got a bronze helmet on his head. Bronze was the super technology of the day. You're not going to get anything through that bronze helmet. You can hit him all day and it's just going to bounce off. He had chain mail. Now we think of chain mail as those little interwoven rings, but this, this mail that he was wearing was probably a leather uh, covering with big scales of bronze all over it. That meant you're not going to stab him. You're not going to get a knife or a sword through there. He, he's impenetrable in his vital organs. They're protected. That thing weighed 125 pounds. That's a big piece of equipment. There's no way you're going to get through it. He had what are called greaves on his, his shins, kind of like shin guards made out of bronze. So you're not going to get in and sweep his legs with your sword and, and, and knock him down by cutting his legs off or something like that. He's protected. So he's, he's impenetrable this way. Not only is he impenetrable because of his armor, the guy's nine foot tall. His wingspan, his reach is huge. You're not going to get in and hit him without getting hit first. He's just unreachable. Then on top of that, what's he carrying? His armor. Well, it says that he had a javelin slung behind his back. The javelin would have been shorter. It would be for throwing, but not long distances. It wasn't terribly accurate. But his spear was like a weaver's beam. In other words, it was long and straight, and it had a 15-pound iron-held head on it. That was going to be his prime weapon. If you came in close to him, He's, he's first of all got a huge long reach. Second of all, he's got this big long spear with a weight on it. He's going to skew you as, as soon as you get close. Now, it's not mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, but it comes up a couple of times later. He's also got a sword. 
And sometimes you see it pictured as a giant sword. It probably wasn't. It was probably just a normal size, but a decent sword. So this is Goliath. This is the guy that comes out and says, fight me. No way. I'm not going near that guy. That's terrifying. Now, that's all his, his assets, his pluses. Let's talk about some of his minuses. He's got some weaknesses. If he has got the same thing that um, Wadlow had, then that pituitary gland tumor that was pushing, it was also hitting his optic nerve. And so Wadlow had terrible eyesight. He had a bit of tunnel vision and his eyes were crossed. That sounds like what's going on with Goliath because when Goliath comes out, David shows up with a staff and he goes, why are you coming at me with sticks? So he may be seeing double. He had to have his, his armor bearer, his shield bearer go before him to kind of lead him down the mountain. Watch where you're stepping. There's a ravine here. So he may not have been able to see really clearly. The, the other thing is when it talks about him coming down the mountain and walking, he seems to be moving pretty slow. The term that describes him is always walk. He walked here, he walked forward. David, when David shows up, David runs at him. So the picture is this giant who's lumbering, who's under you know 150 pounds worth of equipment. And his, the problem with, uh, with Mr. Wadlow is human muscles are not built to carry that much weight. So he wasn't really super strong or very agile. Um, he just couldn't move that much mass around. So Goliath might be kind of slow moving too, but not necessarily because Wilt Chamberlain, one of the greatest basketball players was seven foot. And when the guy was on the court, he was just athletic. He was all over the place. So he could be more athletic, but that's not the point. The point is if you come at Goliath in single combat with all the limitations that he's got, he's gonna tear you up because he can overreach you, he can overpower you. And so what his plan is, is he says, send somebody out to me, choose for yourself a man and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your slaves. But if I prevail against him and kill him, you will be our servants and serve us. The Philistine said, he stopped for a second, nobody comes forward. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He defies them. The word there is, is a little bit stronger than just, I don't like them. He is insulting. He is reviling them. He is hurling insults at them. I defy you. I, I can't stand you. Come out and fight with me. And so that's the picture that, that we get is, this is the situation. The army is on one side of the mountain. The army is on the other side of the mountain. This giant man clad in bronze with his shield bearer walking before him comes down. And, and it says for 40 days, he would come out and yell this couple of times a day. I don't know if it necessarily means it was 40 exact days. The 40 days might be kind of a euphemism for it. He did it a lot. It went on for a while. So that's the picture. What happens next is um, David shows up. Jesse says to David, hey, go take some food to your, your brother's unit. Bring them you know, some cheese and some other things. And then he says, bring back a token from them. What he means by token is not a thing, but just bring back to me news. How are they doing in the battle? Are they doing okay? So David gathers everything up and he takes off and he goes. And when he gets there, he hears Goliath's taunts. It, it's, this is, incites him. He, he is now very angry about this. How can you dare speak like that about the armies of the Lord? But he also hears something else. Once he hears that taunt, he hears from, um, from some of the other army what the promise is of somebody who will go out and fight. So in verse 25, 
He says, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So whoever goes out and fights the giant, he's going to get a lot of money. He's going to marry into the royal family and his family will be free in Israel. What that probably means is they won't pay taxes. They won't have to come out to battle. They won't be conscripted, um, that kind of thing. So this is a huge promise. If anybody's brave enough to go do that, this is the promise. Um, who's the tallest man in Israel at this point? Saul. Remember when he got called? He was a head taller than everybody else. Who do you think should go face the giant? That would be nice. Instead, he's, he's buying it off. He's paying it for uh, somebody else to do it. David asks around. He verifies this is what's really going to happen. Okay, look. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? He can't speak to the armies of the living God that way. And his older brother rebukes him. I know your heart. You're evil. What did you do? With you? you left those few sheep and you just came out here just to watch a fight. He just rebukes him. And, and that's kind of startling because remember when David was called, what we heard was man looks on the outside. God looks at the heart. His brother is saying, I know your heart. No, you don't. <laughs> you can't tell. And you have no idea what's going on with David at this point. So the word gets back to Saul. Hey, this is what David's been saying. And so David, Saul calls David in. What's going on? And it sounds like what happens here is it begins to sound like we're being reintroduced to David. Because he, he says, he introduced, the author introduces him as the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, that kind of thing. And so critical authors say, well, this is a, a reintroduction of, of David. This is the weaving together of multiple stories, and this is just one of them. Because we met him in chapter 16. So why introduce him again and with all of this, this kind of thing? I think it's kind of fairly easy to, to resolve some of the questions here. For example, um, Saul didn't necessarily know who David was. Now, remember in chapter 16, He's troubled by an evil spirit, and a young man comes and says, hey, I'll find somebody to play music for you. And so Saul says, good, go do that. And then it says, Saul wrote to Jesse and send me your son, and he receives him. And so critical authors say, well, see, he knew, Saul knew him, and now he doesn't. Well, no, not necessarily. Saul didn't write that letter. Saul had an entire staff. He's the king of Israel. He had somebody else write that letter. He had somebody else go and find him. He had no idea who David was. That, that's, that's not impossible. For example, when Solomon built the temple, talks about all the work he did on the temple. Did Solomon physically build the temple? No, he had workmen do it. That wasn't his role. He, he hired people who knew what they were doing, but it's credit to him. So similar kind of thing. Saul probably didn't personally send for David in chapter 16. And then chapter 16 ends saying that, that David entered Saul's service and became his armor bearer. And so they say, well, see, now he acts like he's never met him before, doesn't know who he is, that kind of thing. Well, I think what's going on at the end of chapter 16 is the author is kind of summing up what happened to David's life after that. And now in chapter 17, he's backing up. He's saying, I'm going to tell you a story in that time period. So this fits in before he became his, his armor bearer and entered his service. So why do we get this introduction of... Um, of David, he was the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, from Eph uh, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem, that kind of thing. Well, what the author has just done is spent 11 verses describing 
uh, the Philistines, the setup of the situation, and a long description of, of Goliath. So what we have in our, in our mind is here's a picture of Goliath. And then he says, now David. Remember David? And he kind of draws our attention back to David. So I don't think it's like he's, he's assuming you don't know. He's trying to draw us back and, and have that picture again of who David is. The bigger issue with harmonization comes with chapter 17 itself. Because chapter 17, beginning in verse 55, says, As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner says, As your soul lives, king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, they brought him to Saul. So it sounds like he's already met Saul. Saul said, Go out and kill the, 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 um, the giant. Wait a minute, who is that going out to kill the giant? As if it, he didn't know who he sent, who that could possibly be. Well, I don't think that's really a problem either because notice he doesn't say, who is that? He doesn't say, who's out there fighting? He says, whose son is that? Whose, whose son is going out to do this? In other words, what family is this young man from? I know who he is, I talked to him earlier. What family is he from? Why would he ask that question? What was the promise to the one who wins? I will make his family free in Israel. He'll marry my daughter. I'll give him riches. He's asking at the end of the story here so that he can bestow the reward on David, not trying to figure out who he is. Just saying, which family do I honor now? Who, who gets the honor? So I don't think that's, it's impossible to weave this together. The critical scholars want to make this sound like somebody, a really bad editor, had just learned how to work, use Microsoft Word and was cut and pasting like mad and didn't worry about smoothing this stuff out. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. So David apparently is the only person in the entire camp who is not intimidated by Goliath because it says that Saul and all the army were totally afraid. They were frozen. But David shows up and he's not afraid. He's ready to go. So David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail him, verse 32. Let no man's heart, including you, fail him, because yours has. It's like, don't be afraid. You're looking at the wrong thing. I have fought a bear and a lion to save my sheep. I can take this, this, um, this giant. I can take this Philistine. So why on earth would Saul put the fate of the nation in the hands of a young boy who just showed up? I think it's because he's heard about David he is a, a skilled warrior. David comes and says, look, I can beat, I, I beat a lion and I beat a bear. I can take this guy too. Saul's desperate. He's afraid. The only way forward is either to attack, which isn't looking good, or do this. And so I think he has confidence that it is David is the one to do it. So he gives him permission. All right, you can go. But first he tries to get him prepared for battle. He has him put on his armor. And it's not like this 12-year-old kid fumbling around in, in an adult's armor. It just doesn't fit him right. It's, it's not his armor. He's not prepared for that. He's not been a man of war. He's been a shepherd. His weapons of war are not sword and shield. He doesn't know how to use that stuff. That's what it meant by saying, I haven't tested it. It means I haven't, I haven't proven this stuff. I haven't put it on his skill. I'm not skilled in using this stuff. So he said, just, just take it. I'll, I'll, I'll handle this. And so that's, that's where he puts the armor off, and then he goes out to the battle. So he's down in the valley. You've got the two huge mountains. You've got the valley floor. There's a stream running through the middle of the valley. And David goes down, and he scoops up five stones and puts them in his shepherd's pouch. These are 
stones from the creek, so they're nice and smooth and round. That's exactly what you need for a sling, is a rounded, smooth stone so that it can sail true and, and straightforward. So the Philistine, verse 41, moved forward and came near to David and his shield bearer in front of him. And the Philistine looked and saw David, and he disdained him. Because he was but a youth, he was ruddy and handsome, and so he couldn't stand him. Where we're at in the story is here is the giant fitted with the best, highest technology of the day, expecting this little boy to come in, this young man to come in and fight him in single combat, hand-to-hand, one-on-one. The, in other words, the, the um, infantry is expecting the artillery to come and engage one-on-one. That's not David's plan. So what it's, there's a little taunting back and forth. Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the breeze of the field. And David says, you come with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. And I will give the bodies of the host of the Philistines, Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that I'm that bad. I beat a giant. It's not about David. That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Where is David's confidence? It's not in five stones in his bag. It's not in a sling. It's not in his shepherd's staff. This isn't my fight, David says. God's going to do this. Now, that doesn't mean that David just sits down and waits till God destroys him. He's got work to do. So it says in verse 48, the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David. It wasn't like he was sitting down. I think it's he picked up all his stuff and moved forward. He's, gonna, he's expecting one-on-one combat, hand fighting. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, put his hand in his bag, and he pulled out a stone, one of those smooth stones from the, the, the riverbed. Um, probably egg-shaped would be the best kind of shape to use in a sling, and he puts it in his sling. Now, this isn't a wrist rocket, you know, you're shooting BBs at something. These slings were incredibly powerful weapons of the day. And, and in the hands of a skilled operator, they could, there's one place, I, th- I think it's in Judges talks about um, left-handed slingers splitting hairs with them. I mean, that's how accurate they were. And the, the Judeans were known for their slingers. That was one of the things that they could do very well. So when he put that rock in there and he starts spinning it, he's spinning it around. And when he lets go, that rock is traveling about 60 miles an hour. It's like a bullet. And so he's so accurate, he slings it, he lets it fly, and it hits the one spot on Goliath where he's most vulnerable. He's got a helmet on, so don't, you can't go on the top. Hits him right in the middle of the forehead. You think that rock just happened to go that way? I think this is the Lord delivering him. The Lord made sure that rock traveled exactly where it needed to go, hit him in the head, and down he goes, flat on his face. When was the last time we heard about a Philistine falling flat on his face and losing his head? That's when the Philistines took the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Dagon. What happens to your God happens to you. Dagon gets his head cut off. Philistine gets his head cut off. So this brings us to really the the last little technical nitnoid issue that I want to bring up here. Um, In verse 54, it says, And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. 
Big problem here. At this point in redemptive history, Jerusalem belongs to the Jebusites. It's not Israel's territory yet. It's not the headquarters of Israel at this point. And he put his armor in his tent. David doesn't have a tent. He just showed up to bring food. So again, critical scholars, oh, this is clumsy editing, bringing different stories together. I, I think what this is, is, is a summary again of the events that happened, just like at the end of 16. He's saying eventually where the head wound up was in Jerusalem. Eventually where the armor wound up was in David's tent. What we'll find out later is the sword winds up in the tabernacle. Because in, I think it's 26, David goes to Nob and says, do you have any food? And Abimelech says, yeah, here, have some bread. Oh, and by the way, here's the sword from Goliath. So that isn't possible. It's not possible that he took it to Jerusalem at this point. Plus, what we're going to see in another verse or two is he shows up to see Saul and he's got the head in his hand. So he didn't take it to Jerusalem yet. This is, this is our author saying, and this is how these things wound up happening in the future. So he shows up with the head in the hand and goes and visits Saul. Look what I did. And Israel is now awakened and they go pursue the Philistines and they chase them down and they have their victory that day. So that's kind of the summary of the story. Um, what are we supposed to do with this? What, what, what kind of things are we, are we gaining from this? There are probably thousands of implications of this story. And so any sermon you hear, probably with the exception of slay your giants in your life, is probably a good one. They're, they're probably accurate. Where I think what we need to hear because of our place and time and, and where we're at is uh, about fear. Um, I just saw last week or the week before, they found a 13-foot crocodile on a beach in uh, Australia. That's scary. 13-foot crocodile. Right? That's more than, that's, yeah, about twice me, maybe more. Here's the really scary part. Its head was cut off. So be afraid of the crocodile, but who cut its head off? Be afraid of the one who cut its head off. That's, that's even more terrifying. Somebody beat a 13-foot crocodile. That's scary. So when it comes to this, this question of what are we supposed to do with this story is, is look at what's going on with Israel. They're terrified. They're frozen. They're unable to move. Fear has, has put them into place and they can't budge. They're unwilling to move at all. And today there's a lot of fear in our society. There's a lot of fear in our culture. There's fear that the other side might win the election. There's fear of them taking away our rights. There's fear of the erosion of our culture. There's fear of being oppressed by them, whoever them are. There's fear of China. There's fear of Russia. There's fear of hackers. There's fear of all of these things. And so here's the question, Christian. How do we operate in this, this kind of environment where fear is really what's, what's uh, one of the dominating forces? Well, let's look back at this. We want to find somebody who can beat not just those little enemies and, and beat the other side politically or the culture wars or something, that, that's inconsequential. Who can beat the real enemy? Who took the head off the 13-foot crocodile? That's the guy whose side I want to be on, right? So when we look at the story, what we have to remember is that these folks were terrified to engage the fight. They were unable to move forward and do what they were supposed to do. Why did they want a king in Israel to begin with? It's been a few weeks. Do you remember? Chapter 8. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No! 
But we shall have, we shall have, um, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Who fought the battle for the, for the nation? Not Saul, the true king, David did. So they wanted the king for that reason. That's what they needed. So when it comes to us, we can be lost on the, the particulars, the, the bronze helmet, the chain mail, the, the big spear, how giant the guy is. We can lost on those kind of things and miss the bigger threat, the bigger problem. So Hebrews chapter two says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what we need is not necessarily the right person in the right political office at the right time. We've got a bigger threat. We've got a giant that we can't get anywhere near. That's sin and death. If we get close to that giant, we're toast. His reach is far beyond us. We need somebody who can get in and defeat that giant. And that's what we're being told in chapter two of Hebrews is, we have a king who destroyed death, our biggest threat. So if the wrong person gets into the wrong office, are we all gonna die? No, that's, that's minor, that's small. Someday each one of us is gonna face death. Someday you are gonna cease to breathe. Your heart will cease to function. The, the synapses in your brain will quiet and calm down and your body will assume room temperature. What happens then? That's the real foe. That's the foe that we can't, we can't elect into office to fix. So what we get with, with this is recognize the proper fear. Recognize what the real threat was. There was Goliath. There was a huge army behind him. And there was the threat of slavery. And nobody's budging against him. Nobody could go out and fight this guy. We needed the true king of Israel to step forward and engage the battle in a way we couldn't. We're prepared for straight on warfare. We've got swords, we've got uh, spikes, we've got spears, we're ready to go. And I'm not getting anywhere near that giant. And the wrong person shows up with the wrong skill set and the wrong weapons, and he wins the battle. He came with a sling. Who's gonna kill a giant with a sling? David. Jesus comes and he said, it says that he partook in flesh and blood. He came just like us so that he could be killed. And by death, he destroyed the actual enemy that we face, the real giant in our lives, the one we couldn't get near. He did that. And what's encouraging here is we don't have to fear that anymore. The devil's major weapon, the fear of death, the devil's major weapon, the law, judgment, condemnation, that's all been taken away from him because we have Jesus Christ. And so when we die, we don't have to worry about those things. Those weapons have all been broken. We're in good hands. That giant is gone. He's, he's face down and his head's been removed. The other thing with David is when David comes in, what was he counting on? What was his confidence in? Goliath's confidence was in Goliath. I'm huge. I'm intimidating. You've met people like that, haven't you? You meet them and you just feel small in front of them. They just have this, this presence, this, this gravitas about them. And you kind of, yeah, don't want to really say too much. Goliath had that physically. He just looked big. He was huge. 
He had all the technology. So he's, he's standing there saying, come out and fight me. Nobody can do it. His confidence was in himself. Whose confidence was the Philistines in? Their champion. They sent him out. Go, go take care of this for us. David shows up. Who's conf- where is his confidence? The battle is the Lord's. You can't speak like this against God's people. God will judge you. And I'm going to stand up. I'm going to be the man in the middle doing it. But God is going to fight this battle. That is what I would call humility on David's part. Humility was not, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. Humility is, I recognize who I am before God. I recognize who God is in this situation and what God's going to do. He's going to kill that giant because you can't talk that way about him. Humility says, I'm going to stand up and do what the Lord has called me to do. Nobody else is budging. I guess I need to go do this. Because remember, when God called David, what did he say? I found a man after my own heart. Here's the man that I want. What does God's heart look like? Defending his name, defending the name of his people, defending his honor. You can't come and speak like that about God's people. God's going to judge. So humility was huge for David. The promise from the scriptures is God gives more grace, James 4, 6. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposed Goliath and gave grace to David. Was Jesus humble? Jesus was more humble than we could possibly imagine. Though he existed in the form of God, he didn't feel equality was something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a human, but not just a human, a servant. He humbled himself, brought himself lower than anybody possibly could. What you're asked to do doesn't compare to that at all. So Jesus was ultimately humbled. Did God give him grace? Immeasurable grace. He opposes the proud. Those who are against Jesus, he opposes. And so, brothers and sisters, when we hear the story of David and Goliath, like I said, there's numerous applications. One of them is, remember, you have nothing to fear. The threat of death has been removed. All you've got to do is die. But that's not the end for us. That weapon has been broken. Satan can't hold you back. He can't keep you enslaved by threatening to kill you. So anything below, you're going to kill me? Minor stuff. God can sort that out. No problem. I don't have to worry about that. Remember what your actual threat is, what the actual opponent is, and and know that your champion has gone out and won for you. You will not be enslaved, period, end of discussion. Now, just to wrap up the David and Goliath story, so Israel goes and charges after the Philistines, and the Philistines, according to the bargain that uh, Goliath made, should have just laid down their arms and said, we're your slaves which they didn't, they took off running. So you can tell that the wager was never any good to begin with. They were never going to honor it at all. And Israel wiped them out anyway, took them out, took care of it. Because the right champion faced the right opponent and won the day. You can't be enslaved. Don't fear it. Now, I'd say don't fear. You can't turn it off like a switch. It's not something you just go, I, I, I'm terrified, but I'm not going to be afraid. Click, here we go. That doesn't work that way. Um, there was a great joke in one of the Star Trek movies where Data has got a data uh, emotion chip in and he's terrified. And, he, and, and uh, Picard says, maybe you should turn that off. And he goes, okay, click. And he looks at him and goes, Data, sometimes I really envy you. <laughs> he could just switch it off. And I'm not afraid anymore. 
we don't have that luxury. So what we have to do is when, when we are afraid, when it's intimidating, when things pile up against us, what we have to do is look not to Goliath, but to David. Not to sin and death and destruction, but to Jesus. And that can help put that fear in the right context. So that's what I think we need to hear from David and Goliath. Maybe we'll do it again next week and find a different application, but now let's press on. We'll, we'll keep going. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the great champion who faced the opponent that we had no chance getting anywhere near. His reach was too far. His, his strength was too swift. His, his weapons too heavy. And yet, Lord, you came and you destroyed him in a way that he couldn't imagine would be his downfall. And so, Lord, since you've broken death, since death is not the end for us, but a doorway to glory, Lord, help us to trust in you and to see that our champion, our true king, the real reigning king of Israel has taken over and has won our battle. Lord, banish our fear, cause us to trust in you. And may we do what you've commissioned us to do, which is go and make disciples. And we ask this, Lord, in your name and for your glory, we want a heart after your own heart. Glorify yourself in us, we pray. Amen.